Around the globe, autocratic actors are deploying disinformation narratives to confuse the public, protect their allies, escape accountability, and strengthen their hold on power. In Ukraine, the Kremlin has sought to do just this, deploying an ever-evolving array of disinformation narratives to weaken Ukrainian morale and divide the global alliance of democracies that supports Ukraine. But recent public opinion polling suggests that the intensification of disinformation around the invasion has failed to sway Ukrainians, whose overwhelming support for self-determination has only risen since the unprovoked invasion began. So what's behind Ukraine's success against Russian disinformation? What lessons could this offer to this challenge around the world? We sat down recently with Jakub Kalensky, one of the most insightful observers of Russian disinformation and hybrid warfare, to find out. I'm John Glenn, Senior Director at the National Endowment for Democracy's International Forum for Democratic Studies. And I'm Adam Fivenson, a Senior Program Officer covering information space integrity at the International Forum. You're listening to Power 3.0, a podcast bridging the gap between ideas and practice on global challenges to democracy, where we talk with extraordinary civic activists, experts, and thinkers from around the world about today's defining global challenges to democracy, defending against disinformation, fighting kleptocracy, countering authoritarian influence, as well as the challenges on the horizon, such as leveraging emerging technologies for democracy. We're joined today by Jakub Kalensky, a senior analyst at the European Center of Excellence for Countering Hybrid Threats. For years now, Jakub has been a leading opponent of the Kremlin's efforts in the information space. He created EU versus Disinfo, one of the most cited sources of Kremlin disinformation analysis during his time leading the disinformation team at the European Union's eStratcom office. Jakub is also a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, and before his work on disinformation, was a political correspondent for a variety of web, print, and TV outlets in his native Czech Republic. Jakub, welcome to Power 3.0. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank you very much, John, for the kind introduction. I'm, I'm particularly proud about being called as a leading opponent of Kremlin's information efforts. That's, that's brilliant. I love it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jakub. You know, that's a great place to start. If I can, before we get into the heart of the matter, let me ask you to share a little bit of your own history and background with our listeners. How did you first get involved in this work and what personal experiences have most shaped your own views on this challenge? Yeah, so I used to work as a journalist in Prague. Back then I was in a print newspaper, which we used to call the Czech Financial Times, although probably the scope of it wasn't really comparable. And um, I was actually looking for something new. And in 2015, there was this uh, resolution on the level of the European Council, European heads of states, that uh, Europe should do something about Russian disinformation. And that was in reaction to what happened in 2014 after the Maidan revolution, the annexation of Crimea, and this renewed onslaught of Russian information aggression. So you could actually say that the EU was actually quite quick in their reaction to this renewed threat. Within a year, they reacted. So they were looking for people who would have background in media or communications, which was my case, and also background in Russian. And I studied Russian in college. I, I wrote a master thesis on Andrei Bieli's uh, novel Petersburg, my really favorite piece of reading. So it was just a lucky coincidence that at a time I was looking for something new. There was this new team being formed. So this is how I got involved in all this. It's fascinating to hear how you got your start in the sector. Let's turn to Ukraine and to really understand what's happening in the information space there. I'd like to start a bit further back than the full-scale invasion in February of this year. 
You've mentioned to me that the disinformation challenge really began in 2013 and 2014 around the Russian annexation of Crimea and the Revolution of Dignity. What does Russia hope to achieve through its efforts in the information space? And how have you seen Kremlin disinformation about Ukraine evolve tactically, but also at the narrative level since then? Let me start a little bit about this renewed information aggression of the Kremlin. And why do I say it started in 2014? It's not that there would be no Russian disinformation before. We obviously saw incidents of uh, Russia using disinformation. The 2007 incident in Estonia, the bronze soldier incident, was one of them. A year later, Georgia and the war was also accompanied by incidents in the information space and in the cyber domain. So it's not like there would be no incidents. But Maidan was a game changer in the sense that since then we see this onslaught through hundreds or possibly thousands of channels targeting dozens of millions of people on a daily basis. This wasn't the case in 2007. This wasn't the case in 2008. This really started with the Maidan revolution. Since then, you would see these pseudo-media mushrooming around Europe, these outlets that will be telling you that they are the only independent alternative to the lying mainstream media. But in fact, they are just spreading Russian lies on a daily basis and they are not doing anything else. And I have to admit that this Maidan revolution was really like a defining moment also for me personally, not just in the sense that we would see this onslaught of Russian information aggression, but I still consider it to be the biggest story of the 21st century, the purest clash of democracy versus dictatorship of rule of law versus might makes right attitude. And I do think that we should have helped Ukraine significantly more. But to the second part of your question, what is Russia trying to achieve? And I think for that, it's it's useful to remind this concept of zero-sum games versus non-zero-sum games. We in the democratic world, we understand the relationships between the countries as a non-zero-sum game. We can have a more attractive Canada and a more attractive United States, and nobody's losing anything. Both are just gaining. And this is not how Russia sees it. Russia sees it as a zero-sum game. So whenever someone who I consider opponent gains, I am losing. And now, what do you do in a situation where you are utterly incapable of improving your own position? And Vladimir Putin has proven exactly that. Russia is still dependent on exporting fossil fuels. It is not an attractive country. People are running away in millions. He is not capable of strengthening his own position. The only other tactic you have is weakening the opponent. And that's precisely what this information aggression is about. It is just about weakening the West and strengthening the Kremlin, nothing else. This weakening of the West will be happening on multiple levels. Imagine EU and NATO countries. So therefore, the support for the Brexit referendum, because EU without UK will be a weaker EU. But it will be also on the level of the countries. Therefore, you will be supporting all the separatists across Europe, be it the separatists in Scotland, the separatists in Catalonia, the separatists in northern Italy. Because if you have Scottish separatists winning, then you will have a weaker UK to deal with. Therefore, the support of all the anti-democratic actors, which we see on both sides of the Atlantic, trying to discredit the Western values. Attacks on political parties or even individuals who stand for the Western values and against the Kremlin. And many of these goals, they have been there since the Cold War. They are still the same. So when you ask about this, you know, evolution of Russian disinformation campaign, when it comes to the topics, we would actually see all these old disinformation narratives. When you have a look at the books of the old disinformers from the Soviet bloc, uh, Ladislav Bitman, who fled to the United States uh, in 1968 when the Soviet tank came to Czechoslovakia, or uh, Mihai Pacepa, the Romanian defector, or Kevin McCauley's documentation of influence ops. 
Many of the messages are still the same. Just take these biological laboratories of the United States in Ukraine. This is a 70-year-old tradition in Soviet propaganda, accusations that Americans are throwing Colorado beetles or other bacteriological warfare in Korea and in Vietnam, or the famous Operation Infection, CIA uh, invading AIDS. It's been seven decades when Moscow was using this trope of U.S. having biological or chemical warfare. So people love to look for what is new, but most of the disinformation works so well because it's so old, because it's so familiar. It has been repeated so many times, this, this Goebbelsist trope of repeat a lie a hundred times and then it becomes the truth. The old KGB masters, they likened the effect of disinformation to this drop of water falling on a stone. It makes a difference, not because it's strong, but because of the persistence. So when you run a disinformation campaign, you want to be consistent. You want to repeat the lie over and over and over again. So even now, even since February, many of the disinformation narratives are still the same. These uh, alleged Nazis in Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is not even a country or not even a state. Ukraine is not a language. Ukrainians are just Russians. But unfortunately, we see that the repetition works. There was this recent poll in Germany. 40% of Germans believe that NATO is to blame for the war in Ukraine. 35% of Germans believe that Ukraine is just a part of Russia. So unfortunately, we see that the repetition does make a difference, although it really takes years. But I don't mean to say that everything is just old about the disinformation campaign. I think what changes the most is the delivery of the messages, the channels, the tactics, how you get the message to the audience. Obviously, social media were a huge game changer in this particular regard. So the fact that there are new tools and new channels, or for example, that these social media companies present some mechanisms how to counter the coordinated inauthentic behavior, and then Russia has to come up with a new way how to circumvent these mechanisms and how to deliver the message. This is the part that will be changing. But when it comes to the messages or to the aims and the goals of the disinformation campaign, I think that still remains the same ever since the Cold War. Well, Jakob, let me ask you then. What have the Ukrainians done in response to this steady drip and as a response to these tactics that have proven, if not tried and true, that draw on a well-established repertoire amplified by the new techniques that are available today? Some observers have said that while we may not yet know the future of the military conflict, Ukraine may be winning the information war. And as we said earlier, public opinion data so far shows strong support among Ukrainians for democracy. What have they been able to do and how do you explain their resilience in response to these tactics? No, I, I agree. It's, it's magnificent what the Ukrainians have done. Before we get to the Ukrainians, I would just express some cautiousness with the evaluation that Ukraine is winning the information war, because some people in Europe, they just wait for the reason why not to do the work anymore. Okay, if Ukraine is winning, then we don't have to trouble ourselves with Russian propaganda anymore. And I don't think that's a good uh, mindset. I think it would be very dangerous. The opinion polls in Germany, or there was a similar poll in Slovakia showing that 30% of Slovaks actually blame the West for the war. In Montenegro, it was, it was a similar opinion poll. I think some of the polls are showing us that the information war is still not over when it comes to the European audiences. And, you know, maybe if the Russians evaluate that they are not capable of crushing the mind of the Ukrainians, they will probably move on to try and destroy the determination of Europeans and Americans to keep helping Ukraine. I think that's a really important point, distinguishing between the objectives in Ukraine and the objectives among supporters of Ukraine, especially in Europe. So thank you. 
However, I do totally agree with you that in Ukraine, the Russian propaganda had it significantly harder than earlier. I recall in 2017, one of the opinion polls that precisely showed you that sometimes the results can be so surprising that whereas Ukrainians were saying 99% of them, we do not trust Russian media, which is like obvious three years after the first invasion, three years after the annexation of Crimea, three years after this renewed information aggression. But then uh, the guys from Detector Media who were doing this opinion poll, then they were asking the people about the messages that are spread by this disinformation machine. And suddenly you, you had something like 30% of Ukrainians believing that Maidan was an illegal coup d'etat. So again, you could see that there is not a very strong correlation between people saying we do not trust Russian media and between people who actually buy into Russian lies. But that was 2017. And it seems to me that the situation now is really, really different. And it's partly a brilliant job of the vibrant civil society. Nowhere in Europe do I see such a vibrant civil society with so many projects. But I do think this is truly, truly unique. I also think that compared to 2014, the state is really doing a better job. And partly it is actually thanks to the people from the civil society. You know, the guys who were running the Stratcom Center, the first head of it was Lyubov Cibulska from Ukrainian Crisis Media Center. The second head of it is Ihor Solovye, who used to be a journalist. So the state is bringing on board some of the best guys from the civil society, and they are really helping them. But I, I really want to praise the civil society of Ukraine. I recall the book by David Patrikarakos, uh, 140 characters. That was back at the time when Twitter had a different character limit. And uh, one of the chapters is about Maidan and about what was happening there. And he was describing how the civil society basically substituted the state, which was dysfunctional back at that time. So I would definitely say like 60, 70 percent of it is the brilliant Ukrainian civil society. But partly, I also think that it is the horrendous crimes that Russia is committing. After all, it is the actions that do speak louder than words. And if the actions are so atrocious, then no communication in the world can fix this. And certainly not in Ukraine, maybe somewhere in the West, maybe among some audiences in the West, but surely not in Ukraine. So I think it's partly the civil society, but partly also the nature of what Russia is doing. That's a really important distinction, particularly this question you mentioned about the inability to hide atrocities at the level and the scale that we're seeing across Ukraine. You mentioned the work of civil society and how important it's been as one of the key deciding factors. And I'd love to hear a bit more about what you've been seeing, what's unique, what's different, and how some of these organizations have adapted their approach, either starting in 2014 or even more recently with the full-scale invasion you know, this past February. What are some of these organizations doing that's really helping to get the Ukrainian narrative out into the public? Yeah, so when it comes to the civil society in Ukraine, I think the biggest inspiration for me is probably the numbers of the various actors. So in this information, it's Stop Fake, it's Internews, it's Ukrainian Crisis Media Center, it's Text, the uh, Detector Media, and I'm sure I forgot to name some projects that I even really like. So some of them are focusing on publishing shorter articles, which will be easier to consume. Some of them will be publishing longer reports, which is probably better for the audience in, in academia and think tanks. Uh, some of them will be covering the whole of Ukraine, and some of them will be covering just some regions, which is also crucial. Ukraine is a big country, 40 million people. The audience is not a monolith. The messaging with which you address the people in Lviv will be different from the messaging which you will use in Odessa. Some of these civil society actors will be introducing some technical novelties, I believe. It's Texty's approach, 
which was quite a new thing, uh, this machine scanning of selected keywords in the Russian information ecosystem. But even following traditional media has a lot of sense and it can be a game changer. I recall how Ukrainian Crisis Media Center was monitoring the Russian state TV channels. I think it was uh, 2017. And then they were exposing how the Russian propagandists talk about particular European countries to the European audiences. And that was making waves in the media in countries that didn't really think they need to care about the Russian information war. So I think it would really be mainly the numbers and the fact that each of them has a different role. They are usually not overlapping, but they are more like complementing each other. And thanks to the sheer numbers, they managed to neuter the biggest advantage of Russian propaganda, and that is precisely the numbers. It's not that Russian disinformation actors would have a more attractive message. They don't. It's not that they would be more sophisticated in delivering it. They are not. It's just the numbers. It's the numbers that make the difference. And Ukrainians are matching them there. That is that is brilliant. And I think this should be an inspiration for many Western bureaucracies. Jakob, let me follow up on that. You've written a couple of interesting pieces that caught our attention. You published a book chapter on what you call the four lines of defense against disinformation. And you've also echoed calls for the creation of a so-called Transparency International for Disinformation. Tell us a little bit more about where you see lessons learned for the challenge more broadly. Yeah, to start with the four lines, after I spent the first three years of countering Russian disinformation, just explaining what it is. And after the three years, it seemed to me that hopefully the situation is changing and people are not neglecting that we have a problem with Russian disinformation anymore. Uh, less people were totally unaware of what it looks like, but more people started asking, okay, so, so we have a problem with disinformation. But we can't do anything about it because we have freedom of speech, uh, which is approximately like saying we can't do anything about the people selling heroin because we have freedom of enterprise. It's, it's simply not true. <laughs> so I started collecting the various countermeasures and best practices and recommendations about what can be done to counter disinformation. And after a few months of collecting, it occurred to me that I see four bigger groups based on the various goals that people were trying to achieve with these countermeasures. So the four lines are better documentation of what is happening in the information space, how many channels the disinformers use, how many messages do they spread, uh, how many people do they persuade, the important question of their success, which is unfortunately still not being measured very systematically. The second line would be raising awareness about the threat. So in the first line, we try to get more information. In the second line, we are trying to spread it among more people. And in this regard, I think precisely the topic we discussed just, just a minute ago, precisely the number of actors is truly crucial. It's great that some governments are trying to have these communication campaigns explaining what is the problem of Russian disinformation. The trouble is that governments have limited audience. We are not in the 20th century anymore. The audiences are significantly more fragmented. And even though many think tanks are doing some great job, they also have limited audience. We simply need more actors here, even celebrities. There are some best practices in Lithuania. Andriy Stapinas, a uh, journalist who's mocking Russian propaganda on a weekly basis in a show very similar to John Oliver's show. He's reaching audiences that government officials or think tankers do not reach. I think that's brilliant. The third line would be trying to repair the weaknesses in the information ecosystem. 
Uh, people focus mainly on social media. I think, especially here in Europe, a lot of work has been done there. I think Brussels has done some great job when it comes to code of practice on disinformation or Digital Services Act. But I do think that sometimes the traditional media still get overlooked. Even when you have a look at the reporting from the war in Ukraine, the way some media reported on the pseudo-referenda in the annexed territories, you know, 95% of people of Kherson voted in the referendum. I mean, that's a lie. There were no 95%. There was no referendum. And if we give credibility to the Russian voices and put it on the same pedestal as the Ukrainian voices or Western voices, we are misleading the reader. That's just not fair. Finally, punishing, limiting, deterring of the information aggressors. And that can be done just verbally, just naming and shaming them, calling them out. But there are also other tools like sanctions against individuals. I think since February, the situation has gotten better there but also against organizations. And it was just two or three weeks ago when I read this piece of news that uh, Rasia Sivonia, this is a huge Russian state media group, was still sending millions to a US company that produces articles and news wires and radio shows to the US audience. Had we sanctioned these organizations, it would be impossible for any Western company to do business with them. And something like this wouldn't be possible. Similarly, something that the US is doing really well, investigations of these activities, what happened after the 2016 interference into the US elections, a huge amount of investigations, which had consequences. In Europe, we had two dozens elections and referenda targeted by the Russian disinformation campaigns since 2014. And I do not recall a single similar investigation to what the US has done, which sends a very bad message, not just to the Russians, but also to any other future aggressor like China. They see this, you know, you don't react to activities like this. Okay, so you will have more activities like this. Indeed, people are watching all around the world. This is not just an issue in Russia. That's true. That's true. So these would be the four lines, but I don't claim that it covers the whole distance. And I think among the um, recommendations that have not been implemented yet, but I think they have a very big chance to, to really help with this countering disinformation. Is this older recommendation for a new NGO, this Transparency International for Disinformation? That's a rec recommendation that first appeared, if I'm not mistaken, in Menace of Unreality, a report by Peter Pomerantsev and Michael Weiss. And I think it would be extremely useful for one reason in particular, and that would be getting comparable data from the various countries, precisely what transparency is doing. There is a lot of good work being done in many countries by many civil society organizations, by many think tanks, by many journalists. But unfortunately, it's rarely comparable. We don't get the same data from the particular countries. So we don't even have the answer to the question, where is the problem the worst? <laughs> where is it better? Where, where are they actually improving it? And where is it decreasing? Because we don't have these comparable data. So this new organizations could develop a methodology and talk to the researchers in various countries, asking them to deliver answers to some of the questions that we discussed above, like how many channels are there? How many messages do they spread per day? How much impact do they have? One more point where this new NGO could fill in the gap, and it's something that the states, the governments do not want to fill, that is tackling the so-called domestic disinformers. The psychological defense agency in Sweden or the vision in, in, in France, or even EU versus disinfo, all of them can target only foreign disinformation. But there are many domestic disinformers, even if they frequently just parrot Russian or Chinese disinformation. But according to this mindset in which we tackle only the so-called foreign players, we can't expose them, we can't name and shame them. They have basically a free hand. 
I think this is precisely where the civil society could step in and fill in the gap that some of the governments find difficult to fill in. It's really interesting, this question of foreign versus domestic, and how does that distinction really impact what we're seeing in the information space when oftentimes foreign disinformation is really used to amplify domestic narratives. So I think that's a really important point. Before we let you go, I wonder if you could share any recommendations you might have for our listeners who want to learn more about this challenge. Is there a book or something you're reading right now that you'd really recommend? I think one of the reports or books I enjoyed the most on Russian disinformation was by Keir Childs from Chatham House, a Handbook of Russian Information Warfare. I think that's simply brilliant. But also the report we just mentioned, Pomerantsev and Weiss, The Menace of and Reality, or a report by Rand on the firehose of falsehood. I think that captures the nature of Russian disinformation operations really well. I would definitely recommend following Ukrainian authors, Ukrainian initiatives, uh, Stop Fake, Internews, Ukrainian Crisis Media Center. I remember that uh, Internews published a book on Russian information aggression as well. Estonia and their internal security service, Kapo, they publish highly valuable annual reports. So I think that there's also a resource worth covering. Right now, I'm rereading some of the old KGB stuff, how they did it, to try and see the parallels between what was happening back then and what is happening now. And it's kind of funny to see that after 1956 Hungary or 1968 Czechoslovakia, 1979 Afghanistan, the Soviet leadership always started threatening with nuclear weapons just to silence the Western voices who wanted to help the victims. I think we can still see the parallel. So this is a book by Ladislav Bitman, the Czechoslovak defector called KGB and Soviet Disinformation. So I think the books about this period still show a lot about the disinformation campaigns today. Jakub, thank you so much. This has been a timely and important conversation, and I really appreciate you elevating Ukrainian voices and mentioning the NGOs and people working on the front lines. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on these issues, please check out our companion blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence, and additional resources on our website at www.ned.org ideas. We invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter as well, where you can find us at Think Democracy. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies at the National Endowment for Democracy. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a good review and a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and whatever podcast app you use. A special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, and especially producer and sound engineer Rochelle Faust. We hope you enjoyed the episode and tune in next time 